Hey everybody, I'm Brian Dunstan, joined once again by my man Keith Reedon on episode 17 of the Puck and Hoop podcast. We're going to come at you a little bit differently today. We're going to really focus on Puck. Uh, we'll get to a little bit of Hoop at the end, maybe, but uh, the reason why we're going to focus on Puck so much in this podcast is simply this. What makes a great team? Because there's a great team out there in the NHL right now having a great season. And it occurred to me that you know, there are things that people think go into making a great team. You have to build around a generational player. You have to have one of the top goaltenders. Uh, you have to have a generational type defenseman. And you have to have, you know, depth. So put all those things together, you generally have a great team. So how do you account for what the Boston Bruins are doing this season? Boston doesn't have a generational player. Sure, Patrice Bergeron is a great player, likely a Hall of Famer. Brad Marchand, great player, annoying as hell, but a great player. David Pasternak, a great scorer. But do they truly have a generational talent? I don't think so. And their goaltender, Linus Olmark, was a bit of a journeyman until this season. And a lot of his success this season can be put on the, on the case of he's playing in front of a great or behind a great team. Having a great season, got a great team in front of him. So how is it that Boston is having what could turn out to be the greatest NHL regular season when they don't really have the makings of a great team? You know what? It's, it's interesting in that I think it just begs the question, what is a great team? How do you make a great team? Boston has made this team not in the conventional way. The conventional way in this century has been you bottom out, you get one or two really, really high draft picks, like first overall draft pick a la the Maple Leafs or a la, you know, they're not there yet, but, you know, a la, a la New Jersey. Um, so it, it's really interesting to me, you know, and then you, then you get, you know, you bottom out and then you get other high picks, you know, a fourth overall, a fifth overall. And those guys all come up together in the same generation, and then you add to it. But but Boston, you know, it's not like Boston had a terrible season last year. This team had 51 wins. You know, they had 107 points. But people were thinking that that Boston team was getting old, and they were going to go south instead of north. So I think the number one thing that, you know, how do you build this team? How do you build this great team? And I think all great teams have it, leadership. I think Patrice Bergeron is such an underrated leader. But remember when Boston had that controversy this year when they signed that, uh, that player? Well, that's, that's definitely part of the process of becoming a great team, for sure, all those things you said, Keith. But, and, and the question that you asked, what, what is a great team or how do you make a great team? 
there's a lot of ways to go about doing it. And, and obviously Boston has hit upon one of those ways. But I got to say, man, that anyone who thought Boston was going to be a great team did not think it was going to happen in this season. Uh, you know, think about that controversy that started the season up. Could have divided the locker room, could have split the organization. It didn't. They had injuries to Brad Marchand, Charlie McAvoy, and a host of others to start the season that looked like it was going to derail them for the first part of the season. Instead, they come flying out of the blocks. They lose their all-world goalie, Tuka Rask, to old age and injury, and come in with guys that had question marks and Linus Allmark and Jeremy Swayman. And what's happened? They've turned in a Vesna Trophy winning performance to this point in the season. Now, it's it's almost like everything they've done, they've done correctly to the extreme. They go out and hire Jim Montgomery as the coach. Bang. He gives them more than a new coach bump. He gives them a new coach rocket blast at the top of the NHL standings. They are so far ahead of anyone else right now that people are talking about like who's going to play everybody else except Boston because Boston is out of reach. Now, they got to play in the playoffs, of course, when that comes, which begs the question, will Boston suffer from the President's Trophy winning curse? Because it's been quite some time since an NHL team that won the regular season, the, the uh, President's Trophy, and has had the ultimate success, the Stanley Cup, in the playoffs. And, looks, and look, unless something drastic happens, Boston's going to win the President's Trophy. So are we seeing something that could happen here? Finally, someone's going to win the President's Trophy and win the Stanley Cup? Or will Boston fall prey to the curse that's hit so many other teams? You look at their record. You look at their goals for, their goals away. I mean, here's a team that's at the top of both categories. I mean, I think Edmonton's got more goals and a couple more games. But Boston is at the top in goals for, in goals against. You look, you, you know, David Pasternak has 42 goals. And then it, it drops off drastically from there. But they've got eight other players, Brian, who are scoring in double figures. There's some nights when I look at, I just look at the Bruins box score and I'm like, no, Pasternak didn't score. You know, uh, Bergeron didn't score. Marchand didn't score. But yet they, they won five to one, you know, six to two. So they've got, you know, three, four lines doing it on a nightly basis. Depth. 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 They've got And I mean, depth. you know, let's talk. You know, we said, you know, they're only allowed 124 goals so far. And I, I thought they had one of the best defensive cores before they traded for Dmitry Orlov. I was, I was even thinking, where is he going to slot in? Like, but I look at the Bruins. Well, yeah. I look at the Bruins and I think though that might be the top four defense in the NHL right now. You know, guys who can obviously score, hit, and defend. So, I mean, yeah, we're, acting, we're, we're saying, you know, or you mentioned Linus Ulmark was a bit of a journeyman before that, but yet yeah, playing him behind that team. And, and it's also, you know, not let's, hey, maybe this is his lightning in a bottle season as a goalkeeper. We've seen that plenty of times before in the NHL. You know, maybe he he never has a season as great as this again. But this guy, I mean, he's almost unbeatable at home. The Bruins are almost unbeatable at home. Man, it's the end of February, Brian. And how many losses do the Bruins have at home? Two? 
You know, that's, that's incredible. You know, we talk, we talk about teams, well, you know, if they get home ice advantage, you know, they've beaten this team or they've beaten that team at home. The Bruins have beaten everybody at home. They've dominated everybody in the East. And, you know, they've dominated them on the road, too. Six, six losses on the road is not exactly, you know, uh, you know, you're not exactly dropping the ball on the road. And that was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, in November. <laughs> yeah. Mhm. Yeah, no, they've been a re- they've been a remarkably resilient team in terms of health. In fact, the only thing I could see that's uh, touched them in terms of a not a serious injury, but a serious impact to their lineup is Taylor Hall is is out for a bit, and and he's playing on the third line. This guy's a former Hart Trophy winner. He's playing on their third line, and he's out, so that's going to impact their depth a little bit. But I mean, that's the only noteworthy injury that I could come across that they've had in in this season. So they've had tremendous health on top of their tremendous play. And um, you know, the thing about Boston is is it's kind of like they have escalated the arms race in the Eastern Conference now. Because look what the the fact that Boston has been so dominant, so consistent, so darn good that now everybody chasing them, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Carolina Hurricanes, the New York Rangers, uh everybody has to figure out a way to gear up, to to level up, to get to where Boston is. And that's made for some really interesting moves ahead of the trade deadline, which, geez, when's the trade deadline? It's coming up in a couple of days, a few days here. And there's already been some blockbuster moves made by most of the teams in the Eastern Conference who are right now holding down spots one to six. I think the only team out of the top six in the Eastern Conference that has yet to make a pretty significant roster change are the Carolina Hurricanes. And they're probably the team that has the most capital. Yeah, the Hurricanes are in a really, to me, they're in an interesting position. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not by much, though, because in that second tier after Boston, uh, it's it's really a, a bit of a a cluster with uh, the Bru- uh, the Bruins, not the Bruins, the the Canes, the Leafs, the Lightning, and the Devils all lurking around the same point total. Um, so it's hard to separate between those teams as to who's going to finish where. But yeah, the Carolina Hurricane are definitely a team that you look at and you think. 
are they the one that are going to make the next move, considering the fact that the Tampa Bay Lightning added Tanner Janot recently? Obviously, we know the moves the Leafs made, and the Leafs made even another move today, getting uh, Jake McCabe and Sam Lafferty from Chicago. And um, obviously, the Rangers went big game hunting to get Tarasenko. And there is talk that Patrick Kane is ultimately going to wind up with the Rangers. So the Carolina Hurricane, yep, they're good. They're young. They're feisty. They've got a good veteran core to lead them. And they also have $10 million in cap space left to play around with. So it looks like we'll have to wait and see what kind of move they make. But that's what I want to talk about, Keith, is that the arms race in the Eastern Conference pretty much shows you just where the power, the balance of power lies in the NHL these days. Because all the teams we've talked about, Boston, obviously, Toronto, Carolina, New Jersey, the Rangers, um, all of them would be in first place in the Western Conference if the standings were, were stopped today. That's how power-heavy yeah, the you know Eastern what I mean. Conference I, is. I, I hear you, but this, you know, you'd be playing a different schedule, different balance. Um, so, I mean, yeah, by the point totals, they'd be in first. I want to go back to the Carolina Hurricanes, though. And they are in second, but I'm wondering, they were heavy players for Timo Meyer, And the Devils got him. Um, yeah, the Devils got him. So those were the two heavy players. So, I mean, does this throw Carolina uh, back down, you know, for a, for a bit of a loop? Do they take a step back? I don't think so. <laughs> but... I, I think that. Well, are you asking me that question, yeah, or are you answering it? No, for I'm yourself? answering it for my. I'm answering it for myself, actually. <laughs> I, I I think that I think it could, but as I, I was mentioning to you before, here's a team. You know, Carolina's gone eight and two. The Devils have gone seven and two. The Leafs seven and three, and they've all lost ground to Boston over the last ten games. So I mean, this East, yeah, the East is the power, the powerful conference. As you note, as you'll note, most of the trades went from to west to east to bolster them up even further. You know, you you know, St. Louis looks, you know, St. Louis looked like they were taking, you know, getting rid of guys. Obviously, uh, I mean, Boston got Orloff from Washington, but the Leafs, you know, they got guys from the west. You know, it seems so. It seems like it's. Yeah, but I I like to think that the way that a lot of these general managers are thinking in the in the NHL these days, not just this season, but in the seasons past, is that you can always recoup draft picks. As long as you're not if you have a roster that puts you in position to be a contender for the Stanley Cup, it's incumbent upon you to do everything you can to put that roster in position to actually go for it. 
Um, that's what Tampa's done year after year. That's what you, you, Let's head out west for a second. That's what Colorado did last year. They put themselves in the position to get the cup, and they got it. And that's what the, the Stanley Cup champion ultimately winds up doing. They find a way to bolster a roster that's a cup contender. You don't detract from it to try and build it. You, you build it with players that are going to help you immediately. So that puts... Uh, draft picks in a pretty precarious position when it comes to being um, bandied about. And, you know, quite frankly, I think, I think Kyle Dubas sees that, you know, they have a team that is a Stanley cup contender. They have a roster that's built to play right now and probably into next season as well. Contracts, notwithstanding coming up for Austin Matthews and uh, Willie Nylander and all that. So, why not add to that roster, right? So go out, trade a couple of draft picks, trade a couple of prospects, and uh, get players that are going to be integral to what you're trying to do in this season and likely into next season. And here's the thing, Keith. If for some reason, and I'm using the Leafs as an example because, hey, we're Toronto and we're, we're, we're in this city. Might as well use them because they're close to home. If for some reason the Leafs find themselves not a team that can contend after next season. Well, how do you go about recouping those draft picks? You're going to have players coming up on expiring contracts that are going to be valued by other teams. Bang. So you make trades and you rebuild that way. So all this talk about that, oh, they're mortgaging their future and they got no picks coming up in 24, 25, and 26. Well, there's a way back if you have to go that route. But that's if you bottom out, if you somehow find a way that your team is not as good as you expect it to be. But I, I really think the Leafs are going to be a team that's going to be contending for cups for the next few years, if not the next several. So that's not going to be a problem they're going to have to deal with. So draft picks for a team like the Leafs, for any contending Stanley Cup team, um, are less valued. Because, look, quite frankly, they're a gamble. How many guys get picked? in the draft every year and actually make it to an NHL team, actually make it a solid NHL career, actually become contributing NHLers. It's a pretty low percentage. So, you know, it's a good gamble to take uh, using your draft picks for currency. And I see a lot of GMs doing that this year. And that seems to be the prevailing wisdom. At least that's what I've observed over the last couple of years. And, and in particular, in the last couple of weeks, watching the moves that GMs have made uh, leading up to the trade deadline. Yeah, hey, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with it. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm surprised with what certain players are fetching um, because at the beginning of this whole trade flurry, I was thinking, you know what? These guys aren't going to fetch first-round picks, but now you see guys who are, who are going to be fourth-liners, never mind your bottom six, and, and the teams, are, teams are getting first-round picks for those. So that's a bit of a surprise to me. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. And in effect, I agree with GMs. I'd rather get an established player for a second round draft pick than get a second round draft pick and hope he helps me three, four, five years down the line. I'd rather get that player who helps me now, especially if I'm in position to win, if I am a Tampa Bay, you know, because I mean, hey, Tampa Bay has been to the conference final three years in a row. You all, we know how those extra games tend to wear, wear on teams be it in basketball, be it in hockey, you know, you keep, you keep playing those extra seasons, right? You know, Tampa Bay's probably played close to an extra season over the last, over the last three, three years, you know, going through the yeah, playoffs. Yeah, they're getting darn close to it. Yeah. They did have some seven game series rolled in. Oh there, yeah. They're, in all of their runs to the cup final. Exactly. So, 
I mean, if you can win now, you know, win now. I'm not quite sure. Maybe I'm wrong. I just didn't feel that teams like Tampa, obviously they want to win. They've got the core. I just didn't think they had the pressure to win now, having won so recently. And why not? And, and also, it, well, see, also being well, in Tampa a, as you well. You know, Keith, you, you open up a good can of worms there because that's a question that a lot of people, and, and I was I'm reading an article, not to get into basketball, but reading an article about Damian Lillard and the fact that he's gone 11 years in his career now and hasn't come close to winning a championship. And he may be, be, become the Charles Barkley of his generation, the best player never to win an NBA championship. So what happens when you win a championship? Doesn't it change everything? It changes how you're perceived as a player. It changes how you're perceived as an organization. It changes how you're perceived as a team. You are a champion. And doesn't that bring a tremendous amount of pressure to want to stay there, to want to do that again? So I say that if you've been a two-time Stanley Cup champion, you've got more pressure than a guy who's going for their first or a team that's going for their first because you're the defending champion. That's yours. You want to keep it. You know what it's like to fight for it, to bleed for it. And so that pressure has got to be, I don't know what that would feel like, but to me, that would be the greatest pressure. You're the champ. You have to fend off everybody. You have to get that again because you are the champ. By rights, you own that and you're not giving that to anybody. And when it comes time to fight for it, you're going to fight harder. You're going to dig deeper because you have done it before and you know how to do it and you know what it takes. And that's a heck of a lot of pressure on a team to find their way back to that. So I think that trying to become a champion again, that is the ultimate pressure in sports. See, I've always felt that way, actually. See, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. Having been to games in Tampa Bay, having I, I think the pressure if you're talking about pressure internally from players, sure. Players want to win. Players want to have a legacy. But I think in certain markets, a la Toronto, that you've got all of this external pressure. And players will say, hey, yeah, you know what? I don't read this. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. But you know what? The, the biggest thing that I, I, I've always realized about that and realized even more, Brian, they're lying. <laughs> they they all read it. Yeah, they all read it. They all follow it. And believe me, a team like the Toronto Maple Leafs, I think when you lace them up for the Toronto Maple Leafs from game one through game 82 through 16 wins in the playoffs, I think you've got more pressure on you than the Tampa Bay Lightning. So, I mean, and I and not to say that I think players ultimately, I think every player that plays in the NHL has one goal in mind. They want to win. You know, first and foremost, for different reasons, because winning promotes a legacy. Winning keeps you in the league. It's almost like winning an Oscar, mm -hmm. right? You win an Oscar. Winning gets you, winning gets you paid. Yeah, it's like winning an Oscar, right? And then you got five, ten more pictures you're guaranteed to get into. Yeah. So I, I think for that reason, teams always want to win. But I can't believe that the pressure is on an organization like Tampa Bay to win as it is in Toronto especially since Tampa Bay has done it so recently. I think once you've done it, you're a winner. And if you've done it twice, you're looked at as a, as a different type of winner. But if you haven't done it, no matter what, how great you are during the season, I think people still look at you as like, well, you know, it does it in the regular season. Uh, we're, we're talking about well, Boston. Yeah, We're talking about Boston. Two of the teams that had the greatest regular seasons ever, right? 
mm-hmm. Colorado and Detroit. I remember when Detroit won the 62 games, right? Yeah. And then they ended up losing in the finals in Colorado, I believe. Uh, did they, did they not lose in the first round that year? So, I mean, the regular season is one thing. I don't think Boston's going to lose in the first round, by the way, but they could. Hey man, you never know. Oh yeah. Like who they slated. Yeah. You never know. Look, the Eastern conference is a minefield. Boston may be running away with it, but how do you sleep on a team? Like, I don't know the New York Rangers. Oh yeah. As particularly if they get Patrick Kane, how do you overlook a team like the New Jersey devils? Right. I know. How do you overlook Carolina, the Leafs, Tampa? You know, it's just like, I'm telling you, Boston is going great guns, but that the playoffs in the Eastern Conference are going to be a tongue war. So if the playoffs were to start today, Boston would be playing the Pittsburgh Penguins right now. You know, they'd be playing. Yeah, they'd be playing Pittsburgh. And I mean, Pittsburgh has had a good season. But, you know, you get those up guys. Up and down season, yeah, though, right? up and down. Up and down. But, you know, you get those guys in the playoffs. You know, how many how many winners do they have on that team? You know? so A lot. You know, they got it. Yeah. See, that, that, that you know, you make it. That's a good example to bring up because that's got, you talked about those teams uh, from back in the day, Detroit and uh, Colorado, who both had great runs to cup, run, to cup victories back in the day, but also had some tremendous upsets on their way to becoming great teams. Sure. So, you know, Boston can't overlook a team like Pittsburgh because it's there's a long history in the NHL of one losing to eight or the whatever position Pittsburgh's in at that point in time. So it wouldn't surprise me to see that Boston come out and say, oh boy, we got to play Pittsburgh. We better bring our A game because this is not going to be easy. Well, no game is easy in the Stanley Cup plays. I don't care who you're playing against particularly in the first round. But if you're a team like the Pittsburgh Penguins and you come into the playoffs and you've had a tough season, what a great way to redeem yourself. And and players like Crosby and Malkin and Latang, uh, they know about gearing up for playoff runs. So that would be a scary proposition for any team. Yeah, I think there's only one NHL team right now that has three, well, people who've won three Conn Smythe trophies on their roster, and that's Pittsburgh. Malkins may be way back yeah. in 2009, but you know, you got, yeah. they, they know how to win is my point. So uh, obviously Boston knows how to win as well. So, but, but it's not going to be a cakewalk over the, no. you know, the Pittsburgh Penguins. I mean, so. And, and, and the Bruins know that they know that it doesn't matter who they play in the first round. They know this is the NHL. And not only that, it's the Eastern conference. They know that the first round is going to be a war and that first round's always a war. Very rarely do you see teams get walked in the first round in the NHL these days. Um, and that's because of the parity, quite frankly. They're, the NHL, is teams are not separated by much these days, um, Boston notwithstanding this season, So, and particularly in the Eastern Conference. So Boston's going to walk into the playoffs and realize, hey, it's a new day, and we got to bring it the same way we brought it, and even more than the regular season. Yeah, definitely. But sometimes, you know what, um, the stats – are just so overwhelming that, you know, and, and not just the stats. I mean, Boston with only uh, only allowing 124 goals, that's incredible to me through through the 58 games. Just, you know, mm-hmm. slightly more than two goals a game. But the thing that I've watched, and I, I peek at the odd Bruins game, or maybe more than the odd Bruins game when it's on, 
but they've won games in different ways. I've watched, I've flicked it over to a Bruins game because they're down two nothing in the first period. And I'm like, oh, right. The Bruins are going to, the Bruins are going to lose tonight. And then, you know, yeah. when the final score, it's like, oh, they won four two, you know, and then they do go out and they blow teams out, you know, six, two, six, one. So I, I don't think in the playoffs, when teams get upset, what usually happens, they outplay the team and the other team gets a, I won't say a fluky, a, a, a fortuitous goal or two. And then the team that's mm-hmm. supposed to win, they tighten up on the sticks. But I don't see that with the Bruins, at least not in the regular season. I see games where I'm like, these yeah, guys are going to lose. at least not in the regular season. Yeah, these guys are going to lose this game and they just play. Yeah. And as I said, they, the goals come from ev- everyone and anyone. So it's it's they're, they're not dependent, I guess, on on some big guns to get out there. You know, like if, if we look, Edmonton, Looks like they'll make the playoffs. You shut down Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl. Well, maybe not this year, right? They've got other guys going this year. And, and Zach Hyman. I know. That's why I started to think. But I mean, you <laughs> know. point player, Zach Hyman. You, ch- you got a good chance of slowing that team down. Yeah. The Bruins, yeah. you know, a guy who's got 15 goals, you know, he may come up big for them in the playoffs. So it's it, yeah. it's crazy. Hey, you, you talked about the Bruins being down 2 nothing and coming back and winning so many games. And um I don't know if you saw this, but I, I think it was in the the last time the Leafs played the Bruins, and um, they showed a clip from a previous game when they were down maybe two goals, maybe one. They were down heading into the third period, so they showed a clip from the dressing room talk that Jim Montgomery came in and between periods between the second and third and said, "And I'm going to delete the expletives because <laughs> you know how hockey coaches are." He comes in, "Hey, you're the best damn third period team in the league." We're down two. Let's go out there and show them why we're the we're the best third period team in the league. And you know what they did? They came out and they won the third period and won the game. That's what Boston's been doing all year long. And to me, that's the sign of a team that's just like they have belief, ultimate belief in themselves. And that's a powerful, powerful tool. Is that going to be enough to overcome the president's trophy curse? Is that going to be enough to get out of the minefield that's the Eastern Conference? We won't know until April, man. And that's the great thing is that there's this huge buildup. People are talking about how it's such a drag the regular season because we know that who's going to play this guy and this team's going to finish there. And we know that Toronto is going to wind up playing Tampa. So what? It's this slow buildup to what is going to be a massive cataclysmic nuclear type explosion of incredible hockey come April. And I am so pumped up just thinking about it, man, because every series, doesn't matter who's playing, is going to be a titanic struggle. And that to me is why you got to love hockey. That to me is why I love puck, man, because there's nothing quite like the first round of the NHL playoffs. Look, I'm a huge Leaf fan. You know that. But I watch as many games as I possibly can, sleep notwithstanding, because the first round of the NHL playoffs is just, there's nothing like it in sports. Nothing. Well, you know what? I've never, I've never really watched the first round. Well, never kept my eye on the first round in the West. And hey, great. I feel this year I don't even have to. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, we shouldn't do the West. Such no, 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 I'm not, I'm it, not, there are some teams out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. You, you, I'll tell you what, Keith, you say that now, but when the, when the playoffs start, you're going to change your mind and you're going to be doing that. Oh my gosh, it's two 30. I got to go to bed because Edmonton now in the second overtime against Calgary. <laughs> That's going to happen. Guaranteed, man. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. It's clear the Eastern Conference is the power conference in the NHL. We really didn't touch on the Western Conference, but I want to say this one thing about the Western Conference. Um, Edmonton, I really wonder what's going to happen to them if they do not have success this season. And I'm, by success, I mean make another deep run in the playoffs. Uh, you know, they've they've had a pretty good season to this point, a couple of fits and starts here, like a lot of teams out West. But if they don't go on a deep run, I'm not saying win the Stanley Cup, but at least get to the conference final again, do you see big changes coming not only off the ice for Edmonton, but in the front, in the boardroom, off the ice? Yeah, you know what? It, it's funny. Um, the Oilers, you look at them on the ice, and hey, that's an exciting top five, six, seven, eight guys they have. And the way that you know, the way that they're built, they've paid certain guys. Um, of course, you know, these guys, these guys will, you know, let's be honest, Connor McDavid is going nowhere, right? Leon Dreisaitl is going nowhere. Yeah. Um, everybody else, I think if they don't have success, I think everybody else is, you know, kind of free. Like everybody else is free game, right? To uh, to to be moved. Fair, fair game. Fair game fair. for... The yeah, rest of the roster. Yeah. yeah, everybody else is fair game. I mean, you know, the the Oilers don't exactly have the greatest defense in the world. Um, you know, and I'm just no. And aren't you a little surprised that they haven't made a move, even though the trade deadline still look a few days away, that they haven't made a move to grab up? Because there's been a number of defensemen that have uh, gone to other teams, particularly in the Eastern Conference, that looked like they'd be good fits with the Edmonton Oilers. Well, it's interesting because I mean, this is not uh, 2022. 2023 problem for the Edmonton Oilers, right? And it does, and you know, yeah, it's an it's, yeah, an, it's ongoing an ongoing problem. problem. I mean, they had the problem of goaltending. They tried to address that. Some people would say with mixed results, right? But yeah, the mm -hmm. the defense mm -hmm. has been a problem for for quite a few years, and it doesn't seem like you know they're doing well. As we do this podcast, it doesn't seem like they're going to do anything to shore that up. You know, they do have some guys like. They've got pieces that they they've got pieces that they can move, especially especially offensively. But you know, there's something to be said for the exciting brand of hockey they play, night in, night out. And you know, like who are, who would the Oilers actually move? They've got a couple of really good. Darnell Nurse is a very solid defenseman. He's an assistant captain. Tyson Berry is a great. I, I would say a, a very good offensive defenseman. Cody Cece is a solid guy. I mean, yeah, he's solid. Player. I say he's a solid player, you know. But these yeah. guys are signed for these guys are signed for a number of years. Um, you know, who does Edmonton have coming up in the system? I'm not. I'm not sure defensively, you know. And maybe that's the way they do it. But I, I still can't see them moving any of their any of their top guys. I don't think Evander Kane is a movable piece. So, you know. And then, you know, the top. I don't think they'd want to move him either. He brings in the dynamic that they were. He does. But, I, but I'm thinking, you know, if you're, if you're looking for 
a piece to move uh, defensively, for, to get a, defense, a defenseman. For me, you can only really move Ryan Nugent Hopkins or Vander Kane. I, I wouldn't want to move Zach Hyman because he brings something different to the, to the team, right? He's that guy who can, he can score, mm-hmm. but he can go get you the puck as well, right? So, I mean, you know, if you look at, even at the Yeah, but it, but it has been a while, and particularly for the front office. So what I'm saying is if they don't get it done this year, um, yeah, you're not going to get rid of uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl or Hyman. Yeah. <laughs> but does there does that mean moves we made off well, do you the get ice? Rid of, do you get That's rid what of I'm Ken thinking. Holland? Find a new architect. Get rid of Ken Holland? I mean – you know, I know that that sounds weird, eh? To say that to get yeah. rid of Ken Holland, but that might be the move yeah, you, here. You brought him in as pretty much a savior, and remember, the Oilers yeah. were notorious for having the same bunch of Oiler guys have their hands on the controls of this Oilers team for years. Yep, guys who played who played for Edmonton came up under Sather. And those guys were the guys who were running this franchise for years. Ken Holland, <laughs> he's Ken Holland is the is the outsider for this for this franchise. And Ken Holland, I mean, he's he's built Stanley Cup winning teams before. I always say too, when you get rid of a Ken Holland. Well, that's a good question. I mean, the NHL likes to recycle coaches and general managers, so I'm not sure. But if there's someone out there that can reinvigorate or install a new system or find a way to push the Oilers over the top that the Ken Holland uh, hasn't had success to this point, uh, then they'll have to find that guy. But, you know, that's a question I had. I couldn't even begin to answer. But, you know, likely they would probably recycle. I know Barry Trotz is off the market, so it won't be him. <laughs> but who knows? But the thing is, we shouldn't jump too far ahead here because, man, what if the Oilers go on a great one and win the Cup this year? Then Ken Holland's there for life. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You, you laugh. It could happen, you yeah. know. Have a hey, look, you know, if you're, gonna, if you're going to keep somebody in there for life, I think maybe Ken Holland is the guy. I mean, I think, you know, in their brain trust, they got, 
hey, they've got a Gretzky there, right? They got Keith Gretzky there. <laughs> so, you know, that satisfies yeah, that, yeah. you know, quotient having a Gretzky as part of the system. And Ken Holland's son is an assistant GM there. So they've got like young guys. That's the yeah. thing is, it's not just Ken Holland at 60 plus years of age. They've got some younger uh, minds within the within the, yeah. the uh, organization as well. That So, I mean, I think that the the brain trust of the Oilers is perfectly safe. Um, it would be interesting to see who they move if they do lose, because their the way their roster is, at least the players on the ice, it's just hard to see. You know, like do you, you know, the, do you kind of deconstruct the way the team is? Do you make a big move and, and get a top defenseman and a draft pick? I mean, I don't know. I don't know, but I, I, you know, Oilers are yeah. not, you know, they're. It's not like they're having a bad regular season by their standards. You know, they're third in the Pacific. I mean, they're, you know, so we'll see what happens. If they, I, they definitely need to win a round or two. I think, though, for sure. And look, they were in the Western Conference Final just a couple seasons ago, so there's no reason why they can't get back there. Yeah, that's funny that you say that. You know, just a couple seasons. I think it was like three years ago now. Maybe even, and and it's funny when they made it to the Western Conference uh, Finals. I was like, man, these guys are poised like the team for years. These guys are going to be here, and that that just tells you, right? You you can't well, take anything. Th- that for granted speaks to the, the parity that we talked about earlier in the NHL, though, right? You look at a team oh, yeah. like Edmonton, who's loaded, and and they haven't even been able to get back to the Western Conference Final because the NHL is a league where there's infinitesimal difference between good to being great. And gr- and good to being bad. That's how close teams are in the NHL nowadays. The funny thing, though, is the Edmonton Oilers are going to test the theory that you win with defense. They've got the best offense in the NHL. They score the most goals, but that mm-hmm. defense for a team for a playoff team, that de- defense, you know, and the goals allowed is it's, it's the worst in the league for a playoff team. So I mean, they're going to really test that theory. So it wouldn't be surprising, you know, if they get into tighter checking, tight series, shorter benches. You never know. Maybe they are out in the first round again. Hmm. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to leave off our uh, heavy puck section for the Puck and Hoop podcast. And in terms of hoop in this podcast, Keith, I think we should talk a bit about the Toronto Raptors, who are are trying to make a push to move up in the Eastern Conference. Uh, they've gone something like, what, 7-3 and three in their last 10. They're coming off a loss in Cleveland. It was a back-to-back three and four nights kind of situation, so it's kind of a schedule loss. No Fred Van Vliet, who's, uh was off celebrating, celebrating, witnessing the birth of his third child. So you know what that means for the Toronto Raptors. He's going to come back and go for 50 in the next game because you know how Freddie does after he has a kid. Um, yeah. But the one thing I want to bring up about the Raptors, and it's just it's totally endemic to this market. I don't know how much talk radio you listen to, but I get so frustrated listening to talk radio in this city because they seem to have this... I don't know, surface knowledge of what's going on with the Raptors. I'm not going to mention the radio station because it doesn't matter, but this is typical of the talk that goes around about basketball on the airwaves in this part of the world. They were talking to one of the Raptors beat reporters about how players in the NBA just take days off willy-nilly and they never tell you the reason. And, you know, 
why does Fred Van Vliet have to come out of the All-Star break and take a break like this? And I'm thinking, it's kind of common knowledge that his wife is pregnant. But these guys had no clue, right? And that's the, and the thing about that is that's just a small sample of how they treat the Raptors in this city. They give it, you know, okay, we got to talk about the Raptors and then move on. But there's no real depth. There's no real level of understanding. And that, to me, is, is one of the reasons why you find a lot of fair-weather fans when it comes to basketball in this city. Or, or particularly at the pro level too, because the the coverage does not get the same, I don't know, level of respect, uh, the level of interest and the, the depth that's necessary to cover a professional sport. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, for the longest time, I felt that way, but I do see a new generation of people covering the team, maybe perhaps not on, you know, traditional talk radio, um, mm-hmm. maybe maybe not even on the broadcast, but I see a lot of different podcasts. Well, I, I hear and witness in a lot of different podcasts, and, the, and it seems like they've got a deeper understanding. Or I know, hey, listen, Brian, I know you're a real players guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've always been a real players guy, and you seek to, you know, you're on the side of the player as much as you are on the side, you know, on their performance. I think when once you... Um, uh, are in with an organization, you give players the more the benefit of the doubt than the yep. average fan would do. I mean, yeah, I think that sometimes, you know, with, with basketball in this city, you've got a little divide between the media and the athletes and the athletes aren't given a lot of leeway, um, you know, to, you know, to recover. And I, I know, listen, the uh, <laughs> brought in a, a basketball and, particularly I think it was the Toronto Raptors and Kawhi Leonard brought in uh, the load management term and I think it's <laughs> it's it's right and I think it's yeah. very it's funny that other other sports now use right that term load management and I think that yeah, it's absolutely. got a really it's got a really negative connotation to it for me it's positive cuz as I always tell you the Raptors won a championship in my lifetime I didn't think that was going to happen Kawhi could have sat out a ha- half of the games for all I care, as long as they win that championship. But we always got to remember, uh, players, we've, we've seen players come out in the last few years and talk about, talk about their, like, their mental health, a la Kevin Love. You know, that's what I'm saying. Like, these, these guys are real guys. So they got real life yeah. stuff happening. Yeah, so treat them like real people and give them the respect that they're due. I'm not saying you have to bow down and cow down to players at all, but know that they have real lives and that they're real people and treat it as such. But anyway, let's get back to talking about the Raptors' on-court performance because they have a stretch ahead of them where they're going to start to play teams that have positive records and that are they're battling for for position as they uh, right now they're ninth in the Eastern Conference, right in the middle of hosting a, a play-in game if it comes to that. Um, but if they can continue playing the type of basketball they played over the last couple of weeks, which has been, for the most part, winning basketball, they have a chance to move up and out of the play-in tournament. And if they can do that, well, I've called this a lost season and it hasn't quite been found for me yet. But if they get out of the play-in situation and into the actual playoffs, I may be willing to admit that this isn't quite the lost season I thought it was. I, I look at the Raptors' schedule ahead, and 
this the last look first let's go back i expected them to have this kind of record over their last seven or eight games to be honest wasn't the toughest schedule at all in fact sure. i expected them to beat cleveland even though it was a back-to-back just based on what they've done to cleveland this season and you know how they've handled how they've handled um thing. yeah kind of bully yeah kind of you know bullied they, them they handled bit. donovan mitchell yeah Kind of bullied them a little they bit. Handled they handled Donovan Mitchell the previous yeah. games. They kept him way under his average. And this game, he he really only played three quarters, and he kind of exploded on the team. Yeah. Okay, fair, fair and fair enough. But the next three games where they play Chicago and doing that weird, peculiar at-at uh, mm-hmm. thing, you know, back-to-back games in the same city, playing the same team, where they play Washington and Washington, I think that yeah. right there, there's an opportunity – for the Raptors to finally get back to 500, and if they get to 500, I think they'll be in. They they'll be in. Uh, they could be in the eighth spot, you know. And it's still in the play-in, still in the play-in. But for me, yeah, I, I always look at the seven-eight spot as okay. You're you're in the playoffs, even though you do have to play the play-in. Like traditionally, you'd be in the playoffs, and I would be. I'd be really happy with that. They're only they're a game and a half behind the Hawks for eighth. So I think that that's a realistic thing for them. But then they do go back on the road. I mean, and they've got they've got some tough games coming up on the road. No no gimmies when they go and, and they do that western swing. I mean, they they had their that long western swing in January, obviously, but they got another little western swing with teams, you know, Denver's a powerhouse and both LA teams are really trying to push for the playoffs. So those aren't going to be gimmies. And then when they come back off the road, guess who they play again? Denver. So that that could push them. Like yeah. we could see the Raptors, you know, winning two, losing two, and winning one, losing two. And they can't really just hold ground to here now. They've got to move up. I think they've got to play probably at least 600 basketball to get into the top six. Don't you think? Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And we should reconvene in about 10, 12 days, and we'll see how the Raptors have fared over that stretch. And I think that'll give us a really good indication as to where they're going to finish in this regular season. But um, there's no question if they're playing a better brand of basketball since acquiring Jakob Pertl. And um, there's a couple of factors that I think are really going in their favor uh, with what's with what's ahead of them. Uh, first and foremost, they're playing yeah. more players. If you've been harping on for much of this year. And that means Fred Siakam, uh, all the frontline players are going to be fresher down the stretch. Look at this point in the season last year, Freddie was breaking down Well, he's had a bit of a break yeah. plus the all-star break and he's been playing his best basketball of the season. He's going to come back refreshed. And I'm telling you a reinvigorated, refreshed Fred Van Vliet is a bad boy. He is a good, good player, and he makes the Raptors go. As much as Pascal Siakam, I think, has to be the man, you can disagree if you like, Freddie Van Vliet really does have the keys to the car when it comes to the Raptors. He makes them go. He makes them a team that can do some damage against better teams. He's kind of the X factor for them in my books. And if he's refreshed and not feeling uh, any back pain, not suffering from any knee pain. Well, I like their chances of moving up in the Eastern Conference.
I think I, 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 sorry to interrupt you, but I think there was somebody that reminded you of that. I'm not going to, you know, pat myself on the back about that, but I'm pretty sure I did say something about that. (laughs) You know, you know, what's funny though, is when, Mm -hmm. but when, when, when Pirtle was on the team before, I will say that they did not play as much as a factor within the Raptors night in and night out. They were kind of that, you know, there were that fat, that curveball. Well, I'll call it that fastball that came in and, and they changed up the game, the intensity of the game. You know, they were kind of like little energizer bunnies running around out there. But I mean, you know, they weren't the main cogs on the Raptors here. I'm, I'm getting to see them more. Hey, they're a little more mature. They're, you know, Pascal now has a more of a post-up game than he did before. Uh, and they really, I, they really look for each other. You know, and I'm surprised, actually, it surprises me how good of a passer and how willing of a passer Pirtle is. And hey, that's a pleasant surprise. You know, I was even showing, I was showing my son. I talk about my son on this podcast. Look at the way they lock, they lock in, they lock eyes. Pascal's making these nice backdoor cuts. Boom, ball right on his hands from Pirtle. So, hey, that's, that's a pleasant surprise. And honestly, you know, I... I talked to you, you know, about the Project 6-9 and stuff. And I, I got to admit, I didn't realize how much they actually missed having a big guy. It's been a couple of years since they've, since they've had the seven-footer, right? That, I, and I know they have Coloco, uh, but he's a rookie. <laughs> he's a thin rookie. <laughs> so it's been a couple of years since they've, you know, no, it's been a, it's been a couple of years since they've had seven-footers, right? So at uh, that play, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's noticeable. It's noticeable. Um, so, I mean, maybe, you know, they'll match up a little better. Well, yeah, the fact that Jakob Pertle has made an impact, the connection with him and Siakam, Freddie healthy, uh, the stretch run for the Raptors definitely is going to be a whole lot more interesting than what's happened prior to this point in the season. And I, for one, I'm seriously hoping that whatever they lost – they have found and are on their way to finding it and making it a permanent part of who they are as this season continues. All right, that's it for this episode of the Puck and Hoop podcast. Keith, thanks for doing this. As always, it's a pleasure. Uh, That's episode 17. Episode 18 will be coming up very soon. Don't you dare miss it. If you're listening to this announcement, you've made it to the end of another TIYP Narrowcast. The opinions, views, and statements you've heard on this edition of Puck and Hoop are solely those of the host, guests, and their sources. The purpose of the Puck and Hoop Narrowcast is to entertain and inform our listeners, followers, and subscribers, and to help them form their own opinions. Thanks for listening.